0: Lehigh College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, home of winning football teams. Friday <coughs> afternoon, November 5, 1971. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, including the Old Testament part of the course, and taking up the, the final part about the Jews in under Babylon and in the Persian period. All right. Now um, we were dealing with these things found at this island in Egypt, Elephantine, and uh, that's the picture around showing some of these and um, the uh, the letters that were exchanged back and forth between these uh, somewhat dubious Jews that had fled to Egypt and settled on this island and the uh, real Irish Jews in Jerusalem. were written in the Aramaic language. And uh, this is of some interest because it, it shows that, it proves that um, Aramaic was used for letters between people at that time and also probably shows that uh, Aramaic had replaced Hebrew. Jews writing to Jews and they used the Aramaic or Syrian language instead of Hebrew. Now, uh, the, the temple in Jerusalem we touched on that the other day. This is the so-called Second Temple. You see, let's get these temples straight. There's uh, the tabernacle built by Moses. Then there was a replacement for that set up by David. After the uh, child had destroyed the original one, David moved the ark to Jerusalem and set up a, a tent for it. Then there was Solomon's Temple. This was the grandest and finest uh, of them all, although not the largest. Then that was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Uh, Completely. There wasn't a left. And then, then the Second Temple built on the return from the Babylonian captivity. Started 536 and finished 516. It took them 20 years. You might think it was the building of the College or something. Although we're doing better than that. Now, 20 years, which we'll look to do in for a minute. And uh, that one finally, um, through centuries of years, sort of wore out and was replaced by Herod's temple that was built just before the time of Jesus and actually was not quite fully completed in the time of Christ. This is the one that uh, Jesus walked in and and, uh, spoke in and so forth in his (coughs) career on earth. And uh, the one of which the disciples said to him, uh, Forty and six years was this temple in building. Herod was only a half Jew, he was half Edomite, and uh, this was held against him by some people. And he tried to prove his loyalty to Jewish institutions by building this uh, tremendous and uh, grandiose temple. And uh, where do you suppose he got the money to do that? Where did kings get money? <laughs> Back to give his people, so he took it out of their pockets and gave it to him as a gift. This thought it was done. But anyhow, this was... Um, Architecturally and in the uh, terrain and so forth, and adjuncts of it, uh, grander and much bigger than Solomon's Temple. It had numerous courts and uh, adjacent buildings and so forth. This one was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70, and nothing is left of it but part of the retaining wall that held the earth up there. Some of it's in the New Testament, part of the court. That's the Wailing Wall, where the Jews used to pay the the, uh, Turkish soldiers a bribe or a fee to allow them to go there once a year to spend one day in Wailing for the loss of the temple. And uh, this is all held by the Jews today, so there's no need for... Special day for a prayer. They can go away any now. But, <laughs> but anyhow, uh, the Jews would like very much the Orthodox Jews to rebuild the temple on that site, but they can't do it because there's a, a complex of Mohammedan structures, especially the so-called Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim shrine, on the exact spot, and the Mohammedans won't give it up. You may recall that about a year two years ago, there was a. A fanatic, I think he was from Australia, tried to burn the, uh, the uh, El-Aqsa Mosque, that's just adjacent to the uh, Dome of the Rock Temple, burn it down, and said God had commanded him to do this. And he was doing it to clear the site so that the Jews could fulfill prophecy by rebuilding the temple there. Now, I hate to think what would have happened to this guy if he'd done something like that in Moscow. But it was in Jerusalem, and they had him examined by a panel of psychiatrists, and uh, he was uh, judged to be uh, uh, out of his mind and mentally ill, and was committed to a mental hospital. But he said, God, let's the him, did you Well, <laughs> well this is a good, debatable question, the interpretation of these visions in Ezekiel and uh, how they are handled in the New Testament. There's a book by a former professor in Grand Rapids, Weingarten, W-Y-N-G-A-A-R-D-E-N, Garden on the, the, the uh, let's see, The Future of the Kingdom in Prophecy and Fulfillment. This deals with the whole subject of spiritualization in Scripture and how the, Old, the New Testament handles the Old Testament. This, this is his key. His he says that prophecies about the kingdom are usually spiritual in nature, but other prophecies may be literal. So uh, you can pick it up from there. I'll show you the book to you tomorrow someday. But this is, of course, a great deal made of this by some people, and that all oh, that the literal temple will be restored and the sacrifices restored. And uh, how a Christian could approve of that? If you read the Book of Hebrews, the sacrifice of Christ is the final fulfillment of all animal sacrifices and How could you resume these? This is putting uh, the sacred history backwards, Mr. Harris. Uh, 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 Well, of course, in that case, the Jews, this is true. Of course, too, the Republic of Israel is not only not Christian, it isn't even religiously Jewish. It's secular. The religious Jews are not even able to control policy in there. But um, secular. Zionism is a secular social and political movement rather than religious. But if that's the case, then uh, Christians have no business to go around preaching sermons on it as a wonderful fulfillment of prophecy. All the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. Therefore, those who are not in Christ Jesus have no claim to be fulfilling the promises of God, and they have no claim on it. The promises of God are yea and amen to those that are in Christ. And if there are promises that are Fulfillable so to present-day Jews, it is to Jewish Christians. They are the true heirs of these, and not Jews in their unbelief. And the only way a Jew can please God is by becoming a Christian. And uh, not by being a better Jew, but by believing in the Messiah. Isn't that so? And so, um, uh, the state of Israel, I, I believe the Scripture predicts a future conversion of the Jews to Christ. I'm a little bothered by how you can put it in, but I believe it predicts this, and many others believe it, in Romans, after 1911 and there. But but the return of the Jews to Palestine, to that piece of real estate of the fulfillment of prophecy, this I seriously question. And um, chiefly on the basis that they are returning in unbelief. They aren't Christians and they aren't even religious Jews like them. They're refugees from that officer and so forth, but... This this hardly impresses me as if there's some prophecy. Now, anyone's entitled to hold a contrary opinion if they want to. You know, there was during Hitler's worst persecution of the Jews, a Jewish family in this country received a postcard from their relatives in Berlin. And it said on it, um, the Jews never had it for good. Hitler really loves the Jews. We're getting the best treatment we ever had. And so forth. Lots of P.S. Uncle Rubin, who expressed the contrary opinion, was buried yesterday. <laughs> so, uh, that was that. Well, now coming back to the temple, this one that we're dealing with here is the so-called Second Temple. It is not as fine as Solomon's Temple. Solomon's Temple was, all the unseen parts were finished with equal beauty and perfection to the visible parts. This is an act of, and done without the sound of metal tools at the site, This is an amazing. This was considered an act of reverence and worship. Now, the second temple, they began this, um, um, let's say, uh, about um, 536, soon after, two years maybe after they got back from Babylon, and it was delayed 20 years until 516. It was finally completed. What was the reason for all that delay? Was it just they were, were too lazy to do the job, or what would be the reason? Okay, they got what we would call a series of court injunctions to delay this and interfere with it. And this, uh, each one of these would take uh, quite a while to get it cleared again, and, you know, get it uh, removed and so forth. And so this delayed it um, a long time. Now we'll uh, come back to the ancient Persians a little bit here. Darius um, six-year Darius this would be 516 B.C. The, com- the temple was completed and uh, the syllabus in the book at this point calls attention to the Behistun inscription this word is called 2 18 times Yeah, we've had a picture of that. So There's an picture. picture the biggest thing he's fixing. He's There with a helicopter, but they didn't have any helicopters a hundred and some years ago. And uh, One false step, and you'd go down about three or four hundred feet to rock below. And there was no way to get at this except just one way. He was lowered by ropes from, from above the cliff, and it was an extremely risky business. I don't think I'd ask this as a Kurdish boy the Kurdish people. Can you already? I wouldn't ask even a Kurdish kid or a Kurdish Kurd to. Uh, I think that uh, under any circumstances, but that's how it was done. And later it photographed with telephoto lenses. And I suppose today you can probably um, pay five dollars and ride there in a helicopter and see it nicely. But uh, it was very important. Yeah, Mr.
1: Harris.
0: Well, they must have, um, it's, it's extremely inaccessible, they must have lowered platforms by ropes from above. I could paint a tall building or something. Otherwise, I don't know. I'm sure it wasn't a miracle. It must have been. It was very relaxed. Well, that's one of the... Oh, it's right. Okay. Let's see what to this one. Right? Like, uh, Mitchell, the wife of the Attorney General, introducing J. Edgar Hoover at a dinner. He said, when you've met one at the I-director, you've met them all. <laughs> so, all right. Now, this, this was the key to the Babylonian and Assyrian and Persian cuneiform inscriptions. Uh, it is trilingual, the, the writing on there, Old Persian, Median, and Babylonian. And one of these could be read, and uh, this gave the key to the other. So the the uh, very voluminous hoard uh, of monuments in the Babylonian and Assyrian wedge-shaped or cuneiform script that had formerly been um, completely unreadable and undecipherable was... Um, fact, that following this discovery, is a Davidson <coughs> inscription. You'd think it wouldn't have been hard to discover it's not underground. It's sitting way up there, halfway up to the sky. But um, the uh, location is apparently um, pretty close to out of this world. It's a remote and seldom visited really place. Um, incidentally, the Persian Empire, the Persian Kingdom of Iran, had a big celebration uh, about three weeks ago. and they uh, went to it was pictured in time and life they went to the grave of Cyrus and they had a lot of soldiers dressed exactly like the Persian soldiers that captured Babylon and so forth but uh, they are Muslims and the ancient Persians were Zoroastrians which is uh, as different as um, the covenanters are from the Mormons of the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, now uh this, this was, to cuneiform writing, what the Rosetta Stone was for the writing in uh, Egypt. It was a, a, a multilingual or trilingual inscription that gave a key to something that couldn't have been read before. Now, well, uh, um, Darius the Great, finally, when appealed to by the Jews... Issued a decree forbidding further obstruction or hindering of the work of rebuilding the temple. Now we come down to the Book of Esther. This book has um, terrific dramatic possibilities, and if you ever want to tell a Bible story to kids and hold their attention, the Book of Esther can do it. This has more suspense in it than any story in the Bible. You know how much suspense, Mr. Bayes? The Book of Esther. You know the story of the book of Esther. How much suspense is there? Well, the principal villain was hanged on a gallows 75 feet high. But that isn't suspense.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: he was suspended. <laughs> that, that, that's an awful lot of suspense. The story also has uh, very uh, very dramatic and uh, quite, a, quite a good story. Now then, um, this king is called Ahasuerus. In the Book of Esther in the Bible, of is said to have reigned over 120 provinces from uh, India to Ethiopia. What is his name in secular Greek history? This same fellow, Xerxes. Now, don't ask me how Xerxes gets changed into Asiwar, but the real point is his name was neither Xerxes nor Asiwar. It was a Persian name. And when you change it into Greek, you get it one way. When you change it into Hebrew, you get it another way. And um, if your name got processed and put through the ring like this why it might tempt you. They'd probably call you Charlie Brown. <laughs> or something like this. Well, and a good man, you know. attempted to conquer the Greeks and failed. And... Um, Here we had a tie-in with Bible history. Herodotus, the most famous of the Greek historians, the father of history says, having failed to uh, conquer the Greeks, he returned home, (coughs) he returned home somewhat abashed at his failure in this military effort, which cost a lot of lives too, of course, and devoted himself to attention to his parents. This could be a... um, somewhat a big reference to the events in the Book of Esther. You recall Vashti um, wouldn't come and sent for and got deposed and, and they held an empire-wide uh, beauty contest to get a replacement. Now, incidentally on this, Vashti was not the real and main queen. Uh, not the mother of the heir of the throne and the original married wife of the king. There was another one. But uh, Vashti was the king's favorite at this time. And I must say, my sympathies are very much with Vashti. I, I think she got the bummest deal of anybody in the book of Esther. Me, come in there and uh, be stared at by all those drunk men? I should say not. And she refused to go. And on account of this, was deposed, and so Esther was chosen. This raises all sorts of questions about uh, this kind of a mixed marriage. How could a Jewish maiden that, that, uh, dear God possibly get into a situation like this where she would be involved in heathen practices and idolatry? And uh, the answer to that is the book of Esther was not written to discuss this question, but it was written to show the providence of God in saving the Jews from mass destruction. And also, I think it is evident from the story, Esther was drafted and did not volunteer for this, and therefore perhaps should not be blamed for anything about it. Now then, um, Many historians and liberal planted Bible scholars have denied the genuineness of the Book of Esther. They say this is absolutely a wild fiction tale, Book of Esther. And uh, I will admit that truth is stranger than fiction, all right. This book is an amazing story, but uh, this can be answered. They, why? On what ground do they say the Book of Esther couldn't be genuine? Well, um, you know, here are all these characters in the book. There's Haman, and Esther, and Mordecai, and the Persian officials and the king in there, not to mention uh, uh, Haman's wife, the uh, Jewish, the uh, the Jewish. Um, how many of these characters are known anywhere in secular history except the king? None of them. Now, uh, therefore, since the names of none of these people are known, nothing has been dug up or turned up by mentioning any of them except this king. It is alleged the story must be a fabrication, it must be pure fiction and not historical fact. Now, um, in answer to that, that's a a negative argument. That's based on what has not been found. Remember, I was telling you, the archaeologists didn't find any wires in Babylonia to prove they had the wires. And what is not found doesn't prove anything. If they found something, if they found inscriptions that said there never was any such a person as Esther, that would be different. But this is simply negative based on what is not found. And so Columbus discovered America. Why, nobody knew anything about America because it hadn't been discovered. And um, on the other hand, while the book of Esther, well, archaeology does not directly confirm anything except the name of this king, It does, in a background way, uh, certainly confirm the Book of Esther. Susa, or Shushan, as it's called in the Bible, has been thoroughly excavated. It was found to be exactly such a city as is described in the Book of, of Esther. The royal palace has been excavated, and that has been found to be as described there, including the pavements and so on, the tapestries are all gone. But uh, everything there, this book couldn't have been written by somebody that hadn't been there and probably lived there and seen these things. Anybody making this up as a fiction story, if you'd better write a fiction story and put the scene of it in Peking, China. I can well imagine that um, you'd have to do an awful lot of research on Peking to avoid some boobers. And um, this story rings true with what has been discovered. It's, uh, it's, uh, the background fits the, the uh, situation, as you have it in the book, perfectly. A splendid city, Xerxes' palace, covered two and a half acres. Would you think that ought to be nothing for a king to move around in gracefully? Two and a half acres. And these names, Vashti, Esther, and Mordecai, are um, Vashti and Esther are good Persian names. You can give a Persian meaning for these. Mordecai, uh, the Jew, the uh, cousin of Esther, he wasn't her uncle. He was her cousin. He had adopted her, though. As a, as a good deed of Dr. Fulton's child. Mordecai is Babylonian. Marduk is the god of Babylon, and Mordecai is the uh, compounded from Marduk. This would be Mardukai in Babylonian. <clears throat> and Mordecai presumably believes in the Lord, but he's got a heathenish name tied onto him. And then um, seems like one of us would be called Jupiter or something like this. Mordecai. But anyhow, it is, uh, fits in with the scene there at that time. Many of the Jews that returned from Babylon to Jerusalem had Babylonian names that they had forgotten. Well, Now, another thing. Haman, the uh, nasty, mean, dirty villain of the story, wanted to have the Jews destroyed, and he had to pick a lucky day. That's fair. How would you pick a lucky day to have all the Jews in the world killed? You threw dice. Uh, I, I, how would you pick <laughs> I'm sure you wouldn't. All right. He had dice thrown. This is superstition, of course. Very true to the Near East and the Far East, even to this day. People will not do anything important, especially they won't set a date for a wedding or funeral, until a lucky day has been picked by the profession. And you know, it took them about six months to come up with a lucky day. It was a lucky day for the fortune tellers of Susa when Haman decided to have the Jews destroyed. And just imagine, coming in there and juggling their bamboo sticks and throwing their dice. And, Sorry, sir, it doesn't seem to work out today. For some reason, the omens are blocked, and you will come in tomorrow, we'll try it again, sir, and that'll be fifty dollars for this morning, sir. And this went on from day to day. till Heyman thinks maybe he was rich at work since luck was playing a little thin. And finally they did, or maybe they thought they'd they better start ring this off before it was too late and came up with a lucky day. But this practice of throwing dice to determine a lucky day for doing something was a common practice, and it is today in some parts of the world. And uh, people will... Uh, will uh, the grandfather grand guys in China. They'll put his coffin in the rear shed at the back of the temple and leave it there maybe for years until there's a big lucky day. And then they'll bury it and you'll see 20 funerals going through the streets on that same big lucky day. It's a real uh, sort of a field day for funerals. But <laughs> <laughs> all right, now, uh, Puru. You know, one uh, Jewish holiday is the Feast of Purim mentioned in the New Testament. Purim is, uh, the I am is simply a Hebrew plural, that word poor, and you are, which means the um, dice or casting dice or lot. So Purim is the feast of watch. which is to remember the, the time the Jews avoided destruction at the time of the uh, uh, testing. Now, Ezra came back with a large party of Jews, This man is rated as being super, super strict. He, uh, not only forbade mixed marriages of Jews with non-Jews, but he uh, insisted on the ones that had already been married uh, getting divorced. That's really going some, and it evidently caused a good bit of uh, objection and dissent, but he was able to put this through. And he uh, expounded the law of Moses and uh, really insisted on it. 589 the original home of Nehemiah's family. Nehemiah, a Jew, had never been in Jerusalem. He must have been born in Babylon or in that area during the Babylonian captivity, and um, he became cupbearer to the king of Persia. Why would this be an important office or position? Cupbearer to the king. This would be comparable to being... uh, Waker's uh, attendant at the cafeteria down here in the student center? More like the President's Secretary. All right, uh, you should realize that these ancient kings were always terribly afraid of being assassinated, and poison was the favorite way of doing it because uh, before chemical analysis was invented, it was almost impossible to prove. So you've got to bump off a king. Poison is the uh, instrument of choice for this. And so the cupbearer would have to take a drink himself of the king's wine or whatever he's drinking before he handed to the king. This would lead him to be extremely careful to see that nobody slipped any cyanide or anything into that drink. And the same gentleman pull that a paratrooper in the air force um, wrapped wraps his own parachute and close it up that so he's gonna have to jump with. I wonder do you think this would lead us all to be pretty careful about how they put that parachute together? <laughs> well, of course it would. And uh, so this was a uh, very honorable position, and presumably anybody holding a position like this would have to be independently wealthy so they couldn't be bribed. If you're a millionaire, why somebody offering you a thousand dollars to sip some cyanide in the Q1 doesn't get you anywhere. If you if you haven't got anything, a bribe like that might be a temptation. But had to be rich enough that um, bribes that anyone would offer would be no temptation, and of unimpeachable reputation and integrity. So all this speaks very well for Nehemiah. And he came into the king's presence, said, and the king asked him what the trouble was. And, He heard from travelers that the city of his father's sepulchers was still lying in ruins. Now this is 444 B.C. The triple four, destroyed 586, and lying in ruins in 444, 140 some years later. Can you imagine? um, Well, that's almost as long ago as from George Washington until now, and still lying in ruins. Temple had been built, but the city wall hadn't been restored. And he got permission to go there and rebuild it. And this king, called in the book of Nehemiah, Artaxerxes, is called in Greek history Artaxerxes manner," long handed Artaxerxes. Now, um, Nehemiah got there, and uh, how long did it take him to get this wall rebuilt? Well, he did a quick job. Wall of Jerusalem, laying in ruins, a hundred and forty and more years. How long came God of Israel, in the stairs? Fifty-two days, uh, they didn't count the Sabbath, but fifty-two weekdays. And, and the job was done. He divided up and made it a contest between different families in the field of their family's pride, and they got the job done. And was great opposition from the Samaritans and others around who didn't like it. Jerusalem getting refortified. Absolutely not. We don't want this to happen. They opposed it. And Sanballat, the governor of Samaria, was one of the chief ones. To buy the Ammonite and Gishan the Arabian, these three were a, a real problem to uh, Nehemiah. But he refused to be diverted from it and finished the job. You remember at one point they said, if a fox goes up on that wall, it will fall over and the real meaning of this being that if a whole army goes up on it, it won't fall over. If a fox goes up on that wall, it will fall over. Of course, they trying to uh, humiliate and ridicule the Jews who are building Another time, they said to Nehemiah, come out of the city down into the plain into the flat country for a summit conference. And he replied, I'm doing a great work and I'm not going to stop to talk. So he refused to do this. Another time, they told him that there was a plot to assassinate him, he'd better go hide, and he said, I'm not the kind of a man that hides from danger. So um, they got it finished. Fifty-two days. Quite amazing. Now, the present-day wall of the old city of Jerusalem, is this the one that Nehemiah built? It so is the old city of Jerusalem. Then there's the new city of Jerusalem, to so the north and, and the west and much larger. And I believe the new city has no wall around it. It's like an American town or city. But the old city has a wall. And this is what was the whole city of Jerusalem back in Old Testament times. Who built the wall that's there now? You often see pictures of it. Well, the Romans um, did tore down some walls. This this wall that's there now that you can see that looks um, like it might be ancient is not really very old. But... um, about 300 to 350 years ago, by the Turks, Oxmondly or Ottoman Turks, who held the Holy Land at that time. And it only goes back to the 1600s. About the time the Pilgrim Fathers were landing a ton of Rock, the Turks were building the present wall of Jerusalem. And while it looks like an old wall, it isn't really very old. Mr. Mary? <laughs> No, that was long afterwards uh, destroyed, and probably most of it by the Romans. And uh, he rebuilt that. But uh, in the Jewish-Roman War, there wasn't much left in Jerusalem, A.D. 68 to 70, that wasn't destroyed. And probably there was only ruins of that left. Now, archaeologists would like nothing better, I mean professionally, not as Christians or as humans, but just professionally, than for a real earthquake or an atom bomb or something to uh, a volcanic eruption to destroy Jerusalem. Uh, You can't tear down a 20-story modern air-conditioned hotel to see what's in the ground underneath. And so archaeology at Jerusalem has been limited to places where uh, there were no buildings of any importance and where you could get permission from the owners of the land to dig. And uh, there are... Areas there that would be of the most intense and um, really great interest to scholars if they could just get a chance to dig under them. But apparently, this isn't going to happen, at least not in our time, not, not, not soon anyway. But there are traces of the ancient Jebusite wall of Jerusalem, the smallest city that Jerusalem ever was, before the time it was captured by David. There traces of this. Some stone, some little pieces of that wall have been discovered. And then there are further traces of the wall of Jerusalem as fortified by David and Solomon, and traces of uh, Nehemiah's wall, and traces of the uh, later walls and the Crusades and so forth, but only traces. And the present day, real wall that is uh, real has uh, a perimeter and gate door, built by the Turks in the 1600s and, therefore, most of us are not, not really ancient. Nehemiah rebuilt the uh, wall with nine gates, which is an amazing feat. Now, the Jews love the Samaritans, Mr. Bailey. Do the Jews love the Samaritans? No, no they, they don't. All right, they love the Samaritans about as much as the nationalist Chinese love the United Nations right now. And that's the point, of course, of Jesus' parable of the good Samaritans. Some of the Samaritans did good to a Jew that, uh, ordinarily, Samaritans wouldn't have done anything for. All right, the Samaritans. Now, um, there's a few of them left there, about 200 left there today. In a town called Nablus, right in the middle of Palestine, not very far from where the city of Samaria used to be, and not very far from that to well where uh, jacob uh, got his water for his livestock, and this would come up with when we come to the New Testament part of this course, But um, under-suggest the um, origin of the religious split between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, in the first place, were the Samaritans really Jews? Uh Or what were they after all? Well, the Samaritans were a mixed and hybrid country or race, When the northern tribes were carried away captive by Sargon, some were left behind, the poorest of the people left there to occupy the place. Then he moved in a half a dozen pagan tribes from eastern regions and put them in there. And these people spoke different languages, they had different religions, they didn't know how to get along and communicate. And for a long time they didn't. But finally they began to intermarry the, uh, the Israelites that were left and the pagans that were moved in. And this uh, combination produced the Samaritans, the says in the Old Testament. They feared the Lord and worshipped their own God. Sort of a combination deal here. And um, they recognized only the five books of Moses. The rest of the um, Old Testament they don't recognize. I have two manuscripts of the five books of Moses that they will show to you if you're properly introduced by a letter from the Archbishop of Canterbury or somebody. And I not let you touch them or just look at them. These were once thought they're, they're, they're in Hebrew, with a different alphabet or script from the Hebrew, from the one the Jews have, but in Hebrew. Was thought to have great uh, value for critical study of the Old Testament, but now proved to be uh, comparatively worthless. They differ in 8,000 places from the uh, books of Moses <coughs> as transmitted by the Jews. <coughs> and uh, this is not merely careless copying, but deliberate changing. You see, if your scriptures, and the way you want to live your lifestyle, don't agree. There's two things you could do. You could change your lifestyle or you could change your scripture. Which of these would be the easier to do? Well, see, you could change your scripture, you know. If it says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, and you want to steal, well, you just copy uh, copied me that word not out. Thou shalt steal, see? <laughs> Something like this. Mr. This Next. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they uh, copied and recopied this. Now, where they got it in the first place isn't known. But um, uh, these people uh, sent word to the king of Persia: the lions are killing our children because we don't know how to worship the god of the land. Please send us one of the priests that used to live here to teach us how to worship the god of the land. So the king of, of the of the Assyrians said this was reasonable, and he sent one of these priests who couldn't have been very orthodox because those people were pretty pretty far gone, but he tried to teach them how to worship the Lord. And he may have brought the original copies of the Pentateuch for the books of Moses and given them to these people. And they went on copying them and copying them and copying them, and the Jews copied theirs. So you have two lines of copying independent of each other here, right down to, well, fairly modern times, at least until printing was invented. And um, so here are two distinct transmissions, and the Hebrew, uh, both in Hebrew, but the one transmitted by the Jews is universally recognized as vastly superior and more accurate than this one transmitted by the Samaritans. Now, these people not only had a, an incomplete scripture and corrupted by uh, improper copying, but uh, mixed up religion. And Jesus said to the woman at the well, who was a Samaritan, Ye worship ye know not what. This was not an insult. It was a statement of fact. You don't know what you worship. We know what we worship. The salvation is of the Jews. That's what Jesus said. She was converted to believe in Jesus That's this interview. But ye worship, ye know not what. That's the Samaritan religion for you. All right. Now, what's the last book in our Old Testament? Mr. Harris, what is it? All right. Uh, Mr. what is it? Huh? Malachi, all right. I've heard people in church call this Malachi. Malachi. This is probably not a man's name. This means my messenger. And this book is probably anonymous and Malachi is probably a pen name for the author of this book. It's possible it's real name, but it's otherwise unknown. Malachi dated uh, somewhere about 400 B.C. and not later than that. Now there are later Jewish writings, of course, apocrypha and pseudepigrapha that are not included in the canonical scriptures. A fellow was over to see me and wanted to know why um, these are not included in the canon of scriptures. The Catholic Bible has part of these books in it. But they were left out by the Jews because they were not considered prophetic or associated with the prophets. Now then... uh, as to the psalms, who is reputed to be, and rightly so, the author of most of the psalms? Mr. Thompson, who is it? David, often called the psalms of David. However, 150 psalms, some of them have nobody's name tagged on, and some of them have names of or four other people, one attributed to Moses, one to Solomon, and although it's not clear whether it's by Solomon or for Solomon. And there's a man named Asaph, in fact, two, two that evidently lived a different time, named Asaph, and two or three others. So David is not the exclusive author of the Psalms, and this is merely called the Psalms of David because he was the principal author of them. Now, uh, critics have said that uh, many of the Psalms couldn't have been written by David and must have been written long after this. Too bad. Uh, It must have been written much later. What is Unger's conclusion about this? Sister? When the psalms could have been written or were written? First place, does he agree with these critics that many of them must have been long after David's time? Mr. Dennison, does he? No, he doesn't. And uh, Dr. Albright, less conservative than Unger, although Unger studying under him, Albright said, nothing in the book of Psalms needs to be dated later than 400 B.C. In other words, it spans the Old Testament canonical period from Moses to Malachi and centers in the period about 1000 B.C., which was the time of King David. Now, I think we took a look at the book of Daniel the other day. Uh, Albright holds this idea on the ground of findings at Ugarit Ugaritic or Rosh Shamra text dug up in northern Syria from the same period you have things there that are formally comparable to some of the psalms and the dating of them is known and therefore this indicates the psalms also could have been written that early alright now uh, last of all First of all, hold it about 15 seconds and we'll sit for the day. You didn't see this film, maybe when did uh, ends his book by a paragraph that is um, uh, an appraisal of the value of Old Testament archaeology. What does it, as he say is the principal function or value of this, of this study? Mr. Brown? Uh, the son the
1: radical
0: faith and their this get him converted? Afraid not. It takes the special, saving, gracious work of the Holy Spirit to get people converted, but there's some value in just turning them off. This um, limits the harm they can do. It limits the, um, the way they can um, over-influence people and so on. And um, so purging out extravagant views and radical theories, and he says archaeology is one of the bright spots in future Old Testament studies. All and right. So we'll have review Monday, And have a test Wednesday and I'll try to show you this film either Monday or Wednesday.